So for the reading of God's word, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Reading verses 9 through 15. Give all your attention now to the reading of God's holy word, the truth. Then the Lord said to Adam and said to him, then the Lord, then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24. And then we'll also read verses 36 to 43. Here again, the word of our God. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and had produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. And then turning to uh, over to 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned up in the fire, so it will be at the end of of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There, There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's word, and let us remember that all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we have this opportunity to look into your word we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us that you would sow the good seed of your word into our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be that good soil that will bring forth much fruit. 
for your glory's sake. So guide and direct us now. And may all of this be for your glory's sake, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So far in this series, we've considered what a parable is and how to interpret it. Hankel points out four ways of doing this. First, by explaining the parable in its context, its immediate context, but also in the greater context of all of Scripture, determining the main truth taught. Thirdly, identify important elements. And then lastly, developing the main theme. We also saw that Jesus taught parables to his people for the purpose of revelation, to help his people understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Parables also harden the reprobate in their sin and leave them without excuse. And I continue to use Herman Hanko's book, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, an exposition of the parables of Jesus. Now last week we considered the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils and looked at the various ways that hearers of God's word either receive that seed and bear fruit or they do not at all. Today we shall consider the parable of the wheat and tares. This parable is the second of two that Jesus himself explains. He explained the parable of the sower as well. And this also he explained to his disciples after they came to him and, and asked him specifically to explain this parable. The most striking feature of this parable is the extensive contrast that Jesus uses. He contrasts the wheat and the tares, the householder and the enemy, the fruit of the tares and of the wheat, and the final end of both, the fire and the granary. In the explanation of the parable, Jesus makes clear that he has in mind the contrast between the children of the kingdom and the children of the wicked one. But because both are permitted to live in close proximity to each other until the end of the world, the parable stresses the reason for this. Why is this allowed to continue? The answer to this question forms the main point of Jesus' instruction on this parable. Jesus is not merely discussing the, the fact that it's obvious to all that there are good and bad people in the world. He's not giving an explanation for the presence of those wicked men and kingdom just to give us some general information that's obvious to all of us. But rather, he's giving us information that is actually quite practical for us. It's intended for the encouragement and comfort of his people. The presence of the children of the evil one is a reason for considerable distress and suffering for God's people throughout all of history. But the Lord makes clear that God has his purpose in this, a purpose which is wise and good. If God's people understand this, they will not be dismayed by this fact, but will understand that it must be this way for God's purpose to be realized. 
So we're going to consider four things, the following four points in this parable. First, the meaning of the field and the seeds. Secondly, the relation between the two seeds. Thirdly, the positive purpose of the tares. And then lastly, the separation of the harvest. So first, the meaning of the field and of the seeds. In his explanation of the parable, Jesus says very clearly, the field is the world. Now, there are some who overlook this fact and have argued that the field is a reference to the church or more particularly to a local congregation. And they point out that every congregation has hypocrites in it And they've used that parable then in support of the argument that Jesus forbids the excommunication of anyone from the congregation. Always, so it is said, the congregation must labor in love with those who are not faithful members of the church. Never must anyone in the church be cut off from the fellowship of the church. That's their argument based on a misinterpretation of what the field is. But apart from the fact that the scriptures emphatically point out that Christian discipline, including excommunication, is a mark of the true church. Jesus' own words point out their error when he says the field is the world. Now others take this expression in the most literal way and insist that the reference that the Lord makes is to the entire creation They then explain that the parable simply teaches that there are good people in the world and bad people. But again, there are objections to this view. In the first place, one senses immediately that if this was the only meaning of the parable, there would be little point for Jesus to spend so much time on it. In the second place, there is no reason for the express command in the parable to refrain from the rooting out of the tares, because it's impossible to take all the wicked out of the world. And in the third place, the parable is spoken particularly for the comfort of the people of God. It must therefore deal with a problem of more pressing importance than the mere fact that there are wicked people in the world. So when Jesus compares the field to the world, he is emphatically speaking of the kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is like unto and then continues with the rest of the parable. But that kingdom, though it is the kingdom of heaven, it is in the world. It is not the world, but it is to be found in the world. It is a heavenly intrusion and even an invasion of the present creation and all of history that takes place in it. It is manifested in the world not by making this present world itself Christian, not by a Christianizing of the world. The kingdom of heaven does not transform the creation now as it will when Christ returns. The kingdom of heaven does not change the development of sin in the history of wicked man. But the kingdom of heaven is here. It is here in the lives of the people of God who are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, 
by God. It is manifested especially in the congregation of the people of God, the church. The church does the work of the kingdom. The church gathers the citizens from the nations and transforms them spiritually into those who serve Christ by discipling them, by the truth of God's word. The church gives the citizens of the kingdom the spiritual power to walk as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world, though they are not of this world. The church does this through the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of Christian discipline, the marks of a true church, the means of grace that God has given to the church. As that kingdom of heaven comes to a manifestation in history, it includes the whole of what is sometimes called nominal Christendom. All that ever was the church, all that still calls itself the church, even though it has become apostate, belongs in the widest sense of the word to this historical development of the kingdom of heaven. It is found throughout the world. Now, Jesus speaks of the fact that the field is the world because as long as the kingdom comes to manifestation in the world, there are tares among the wheat. Within nominal Christendom are to be found the children of the kingdom, but alongside the wheat and growing in the same field as the wheat are also to be found the tares who are the children of the evil one. The contrast and the antithesis is to be found in the difference between these two. Although Christianity is found throughout the world, and although in a real sense it differs from paganism, the antithesis of which the text speaks is between the true church of God and false Christianity. The tares are alongside the wheat, indistinguishable from it, for a while, and easily confused with it. It is to that problem that the Lord addresses himself in the words of this parable. Thus the good seed are the children of the kingdom. They are those who are eternally elected by God to be the children of the kingdom. In Matthew 25, 34, the children of the kingdom are addressed by the Lord with these words, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from for you from the foundation of the world. Not only is the kingdom itself prepared from the foundation of the world, but the Lord expressly states that it is prepared for his own people from the world's foundation. The Lord's own are called sovereignly by God to be citizens of the kingdom. Paul speaks in Colossians 1.13 of the fact that we are delivered from the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. These children of the kingdom manifest themselves as such in the world by then walking as citizens of the kingdom. They serve the Lord Christ walk in obedience to his will, and look forward to the day when Christ will return. They are planted by Christ in the world and kept by Christ's power. 
He rules sovereignly over his citizens, over his kingdom. He is the Lord of his kingdom, and it is his kingdom and his alone. The tares, on the other hand, are the children of the evil one. The tares designated a kind of plant, which was really common in Palestine, which looked exactly like a wheat plant during the time of its germination and growth. Only when it had reached maturity and it headed out or it displayed itself did the difference become evident in the in its blooming out in the kernel. The kernel of the tares was black and was useless to both humans and animals for food. These tares depict the children of Satan. No doubt the expression denotes their spiritual origin. Jesus speaks of the wicked Pharisees as belonging to their father, the devil. This is apparently also the idea here. From a spiritual and ethical point of view, these wicked ones belong to the devil. They are his. They are part of his kingdom. And they can trace their spiritual origin to him. They are not simply unbelievers, but they are reprobate. Now, secondly, we'll consider the relation then between these two seeds. According to the parable, the tares are planted over the wheat, and the devil does this. And this was not uncommon in the Middle East, that this would happen where a man sowed his field with good seeds, and then an enemy would come and spread out over the top of his field the seeds of weeds, the tares. It was particularly dastardly if this enemy sowed tares because the tares could not be distinguished from the wheat. That's what makes it so difficult and so dastardly. They couldn't tell until the very end, if if you will. This evil deed, according to the parable, was done at night. Now the point is not that the church is unwatchful. Rather, Jesus means that the devil does his work stealthily. He never comes in with a blast of a trumpet announcing what he's doing. No, the wicked are put within the church undetected. It is for this reason also that they are at first indistinguishable from the good seed. Perhaps they are born within the church. This often happens. And we know from scripture and experience that not all those who are born from believing parents are children of the kingdom. There are Esau's born in the covenant lines. They do not immediately reveal themselves. They are born within the church. They receive the sign of baptism. They are brought up in a godly and covenant home. They are given that covenant instruction in the home, in the church, and in school. And perhaps they even make a confession of faith within the church and along with God's people they partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is also possible that they come into the church from the outside. There are various reasons why they may come. They may marry someone from the church, and so they become a member as well. And perhaps they are just outwardly attracted to the church for various reasons. They make an outward pretense of agreeing with the confessions of the church, and they seem for a time to be part of the church. And such was the case of Simeon, 
who joined the church when he had heard the preaching of Philip, but who tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. We see this in Acts chapter 8. Whatever may be the reason, these tares are sown in the wheat field by Satan. They are not immediately distinguishable from the children of the kingdom. It is only in the process of time that their true nature is revealed. For a time they act just like true believers. They confess the truth, they use the language of Scripture, and walk in conformity with the principles of Scripture. But when they begin to manifest themselves, their true character is exposed. They introduce false doctrines into the church. They are responsible for a spirit of carnality and worldly-mindedness. They begin to complain about the preaching of the scriptures and how difficult it is to abide by them, to be a disciple of the Lord. And in the gradual process of time, they develop into modernists or liberals, and they take the church down the path of false doctrine and apostasy. They become a false Christianity and, in fact, develop over time into Antichrist. The Apostle John speaks of this in his first epistle. He says, little children, it is the last time, and you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. First John 2, 18 and 19. Now, although Jesus apparently emphasizes the antithesis between the true and false church, in a broader sense, one might consider that the tares are all the members of the human race in a fallen state. They are always alongside of the people of God in the same field as the saints. It is obvious that this does present a problem to the church. The Lord pictures this very graphically in this parable. As the plants begin to head out, the servants notice that the tares have been sown in with the wheat, and the servants are greatly disturbed by this. They come to the master and say, Sir, did you not plant good seed in your field? How is it now that these tares have sprung up? Shall we go and pull them up? Pull out those tares. Now it is irrelevant who these servants are at this point in the parable. And Jesus makes no uh, explanation for who they are. So it's one of those uh, incidental elements of the parable. But the point is rather that the servants are afraid that the tares will hurt the wheat. The presence of carnal seed within the church is a source of constant worry to the people of God. These children of the kingdom notice that there's a considerable amount of carnal seed in the church. They are afraid that the carnal seed may do them, may do harm to the cause of Christ. They see the wicked in the majority. The apparent, the apparent evidence of the harm that these wicked will do. We, Jesus saw this and, and addressed this with the ungodly Pharisees of his day. They see that the wicked apparently lead many astray through heresy, 
worldliness, and spiritual indifference. They see the cause of God reduced to very small numbers time and again, a remnant church. They even see persecution arising in those who profess to be the church, who persecute the true church, those who hold fast to the truth. The educational institutions and churches which are erected and maintained at great sacrifice by the people of God are taken from them by unscrupulous people who lead the majority of the church into apostasy. Now this happened repeatedly in the Old Testament and it happened in the days of Jesus. And the history of the New Testament church is replete with similar examples. In fact, we might think of our own RCUS history and how the RCUS, the German Reformed Church, was the largest Reformed denomination in the United States at one time. But then, I would suggest, tares began to draw the church into a direction, a liberalizing direction, and... There was the split in the 30s where the Eureka classes split off from that larger body that ultimately became one of the most liberal, wicked denominations of so-called Christianity on the planet. And the Eureka classes became what we know as the RCUS, the Reformed Church in the United States today. But we are a small remnant body of less than 3,000 souls. But that's just one example. We could talk about many, many denominations that have gone through that process, many seminaries and Bible colleges that have gone through that process, where even though there were the children of God, there were more terrors. And with the process of time, those institutions became more liberal fell away from their commitment to the word of God and began to preach uh, anti-Christianity, if you will. Um, that's why in the RCUS there have been a number of seminaries that we did support at one time who now we cannot support anymore. And over the course of time, we've had to withdraw our support from them because they have apostatized. They've gone to seed, if you will, bad seed. Thirdly, the positive purpose of these tares. What good are these tares? These servants think we got to rip them all out so that we can grow healthy and strong. But Jesus forbids them, forbids the servants to pluck up the tares. He says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you root out up or root up also the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now, what may be the reason for this? Quite obviously, the Lord is emphasizing that there is a good reason why the tares must remain in the field. That, in fact, to pluck up the tares prematurely would be harmful for the wheat. Now, we may be certain that the reason is not that there's always some hope that the tares will become wheat, that there's always a chance that the wicked in the church who are the children of the devil will be converted. And again, we're not talking about just unregenerated unbelievers because we don't know who the elect are. 
And God may have his elect in a church who are still in an unregenerate, unconverted state, but who he will in time bring them into that place of conversion, regeneration, and so on. But no, this is talking about reprobates, people who are never going to be the wheat, never God's elect, and yet they are in the false Christian Christendom, the church, if you will, uh, for whatever reason, but they're not going to become wheat. And that and, and that's not the reason why we're going to leave them. Jesus is suggesting that we leave them amongst the wheat. Rather, the Lord is speaking of the obvious fact that throughout the history of the church, there is always the true church and the false church, and they exist side by side. They cannot be separated from each other in the world. The devil sows his seed wherever the good seed is found. Where Christ is preached, there also Antichrist will raise his voice. Where the kingdom of heaven comes to manifestation, there will Satan try to bring about the kingdom of hell. Where the godly live in the world, there also the ungodly will be found. It has never been any different. It it will never be any different on this side of the return of Christ. But the Lord has his purpose in this. He himself has determined that it's, that such will be. That the Lord has determined this for at least two reasons. Two remarks must be made about God's purpose with letting the tares remain among the wheat. The first of these is that there is implied here a word of comfort to the church. The people of God may be dismayed and fearful about the presence of the ungodly, but by implication, the Lord assures the church that the tares cannot harm the wheat, even though it may seem so at times. The church may think that the ungodly rule in God's heritage. They may echo the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 1, and the daughter of Isaiah, the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have become as Sodom and we should have become like Gomorrah. Believers may conclude that the wicked have overcome and triumphed and that the cause of God goes down in defeat. They may see the bastions falling into the hands of the carnal seed and denomination after denomination going the way of apostasy until there seems to be none left to hold fast to the word of truth. They may conclude that the presence of the children of the wicked one has destroyed God's cause in the world. But Jesus assures us that this can never be the case. The tares can never really harm the church. God always takes care of his church and always gives her the victory. As Jesus said, the very gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The second reason why the tares must remain is that they serve a good purpose. They are necessary for the well-being of the church. Their absence would be harmful to the cause of Christ. 
This idea is surely in keeping with the general truth of Scripture that God makes all things together to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That the tares serve a good purpose is not explicitly mentioned, though, in this parable. Jesus does not explicitly say this is what it is. In fact, it's kind of hard to see why the presence of weeds in a field can have a positive purpose. Nevertheless, such a positive purpose can be deduced if the pulling up of the tares would harm the wheat, to leave them would do good to the wheat. Further, even if the parable does not deal with that aspect of the question, the fact remains that it is indeed the teaching of Scripture. It may not be so evident in the relation between the tares and the wheat, but it is evidence in the relation between the chaff and the wheat. When you consider a wheat plant, not a tares plant, but now a true wheat plant, that kernel of wheat is is encapsulated in a husk, the chaff. And that chaff, metaphorically in scripture, you know, really is, is useless. It's in the winnowing process is, uh, blown away by the wind as we see in Psalm 1 and is gathered up and burned in the fire. And again, you have to keep those two metaphors separate in your mind, um, that, uh, the chaff, while necessary for the growth and maturation of the kernel, nevertheless is separated from the wheat at the harvest and then burned in the fiery furnace while the wheat is gathered into the granary. So it has a purpose. It serves a purpose in God's eternal purpose for the church. Now, the very presence of such wicked seed again, make it necessary for the people of God to be on guard all the time. In other words, if there were no tares, it would be easy for the people of God to become lax, lackadaisical, unwatching. But we are called to live in this world an antithetical life, a life in definite contrast and opposition to the world spirit around us. We are called to serve the heavenly king by a rejection of what is evil, by seeking the kingdom of God, and by fighting against all sin. The cause of Christ must be maintained, and it is maintained only by our constant and unceasing vigilance. In the second place, the wicked seed serves the welfare of the church because it inspires the church then to search out the scriptures, to look at the riches of the word of God. If you consider church history, all heresy arises within the church. And the faithful are called to defend the truth against that heresy. This very calling prompts them to turn with renewed zeal to the scriptures to see what the scriptures say about this or that particular teaching that has arisen in the world, in the, in the church. And this has always happened in the, in church history. If you read church history, this has been the constant demonstration of this battle 
You know, the, the development of the scriptures by the church in terms of doctrine does not come from those ivory towers of theological speculation and the cozy quietness of some theologian's room. It comes rather in the heated battle of the truth against the lie. You know, you might think of the first couple of centuries of church history and all of the different heretics that arose. They didn't come from outside. They arose within the church. And they started teaching things like, well, you know, Jesus, he just appeared to be a man. He wasn't really a man. He was, he was only divine. He wasn't truly a man. And then others came along and said, no, 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 no. You know, he was not really divine. He was truly just human. And then another came along and said, no, 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 it's, it's this and that. And you look at all of those church councils that came about in the first couple of centuries that hammered out the creeds that we know, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed. We think of the time of the Reformation with all of the confessions and, and uh, catechisms that we have. All of those were hammered out in the heat of spiritual warfare because they were addressing particular heresies. That's why we have all that stuff. And that's the purpose of the tares among the wheat. One of the purposes for the church's good. In the third place, the presence of both seeds provides time for both of them to ripen. For the seed of the wicked one to ripen in the development of sin in history, filling up that cup of iniquity to become ripe then for God's final judgment, and the ripening of the church throughout history, coming to that full maturation, receiving Christ at the end. And it is true that this ripening takes place only through the way of suffering, war, struggle, and watchfulness. But God uses these things as means to prepare his people for glory. But again, at the same time, the wicked also develop. They reveal themselves as truly of the kingdom of darkness. They increase in wickedness until they become ripe for judgment. It is their very nearness to the children of the kingdom that brings about their development in sin. The presence of the church is the immediate occasion for their greatest sins. It was the presence of Christ in Palestine that served to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. If Christ had not had come, those Pharisees might have continued in that hypocrisy with that show of piety and so on. But no, with Christ coming, their hatred of God and of Christ was fully manifested when they crucified Jesus on the cross. And then they became ripe for judgment. The presence of the church serves to uncover the basic evil that lurks in the hearts of men. Those who hate God and the cause of Christ. And who try to hide that under a cloak of piety. But in this way they become ripe for judgment. It also appears, lastly, that hard-pressed saints of God see the horror of persecution. Now, again, we don't see that in this country like they did in the first few centuries 
of church history. As Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, all of those Christians who were persecuted first by the Jews and then by the Romans. But Jesus doesn't look at persecution and see it as a fearful thing as believers might. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's only through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that development of the church and the development of evil, you can just look, look at the world around us. Look at what has happened even in just the last few years. Not just in the pagan world, which is becoming more lawless and filling up the cup of iniquity, but also in the broader churches as they call themselves, in evangelicalism, of course in mainline liberal Protestantism, as well as, of course, in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and all of those, look at how so many of them are embracing denomination after denomination, the woke mentality, the alphabet soup ideas, embracing those and beginning to at least in word, persecute those who are standing for the truth as being bigots or whatever, whatever slur they might use now, transphobic, you know, you're, you're this or that, you know, and, and criticizing those who are standing for what the Bible teaches. But that's just part of this process of their filling up the cup of iniquity. Those tares are demonstrating themselves now I happened to look at an article that had a link to a a church in Edina, Minnesota, where I had an aunt and uncle live many years ago. So it kind of, kind of piqued my interest in this ELCA church, which is one of the most liberal, if not the most liberal Lutheran body that embraced everything under the sun, if you will. And this particular church that had a, had a link to a video podcast, or not podcast, but a, a live stream of their their worship service last Sunday, and I and I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to take a look at this. And first of all, they have a woman pastor, which we know is not what the scripture teaches. And she, this woman pastor, has come up with a new creed to replace the Apostles' Creed, called the Sparkle Creed. And I started to read it, and it was so utterly offensive and blasphemous. But this is what she has come up with and are promoting and declare or confess in this church, in this body. And honestly, if I'd been sitting there, I would have been afraid that the ceiling was going to cave in. But what really surprised me was in the congregation, the vast majority of them we're all older people with white hair. And I'm like, how? How did you get to this place? Other than just over time, decades of time. You know, the old analogy of the frog in the water. If you throw a frog into boiling water, it'll hop right out. 
But if you put that frog in water and you slowly turn up the temperature, it'll stay in there until it's boiling and cooked. Not recognizing the danger and not, you know, it, because it, 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 it gets used to it. You know, it, it, uh, maybe likes it, you know, and so on. But to see all of that is, is truly disheartening as, as we're considering here, but to know that there's a purpose in that. God has a purpose in that. That filling up of the cup of iniquity, of the tares, but we know it's coming. And that's the last consideration, the separation of the harvest. The harvest in the parable is the end of the world. This is the end of the world in the absolute sense. Jesus knows only of one end, not the many ends that premillennialism teaches, but only one end. It is that moment when God's purpose, according to his eternal counsel, is realized for all that he has determined to do and has been accomplished. Creation and history are brought to their telos, their purpose, their goal. Then all things are ready. The wicked have filled up their cup of iniquity, and the filling up of this cup has made them then ripe for God's final judgment. The church is ripe for her final salvation, and all things are ready for Christ's return. Now, many times in scriptures, the angels are given a place in the final coming of Christ. And Jesus mentions them in this parable. We see that in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 14, where the angel is giving us a sickle, you know, for the harvest and reaps because the earth is ripe for God's judgment and for the coming of Christ. And in the parable, the angels are pictured as those who are gathering out of the kingdom all things that offend and which do iniquity, Jesus said. The first description is impersonal, all things that offend, evidently referencing to all those evils and temptations which the wicked place in the way of the people of God in an effort to cause them to stumble and fall into sin. This is constantly the trial of God's people on the earth. The wicked hold before them the allurements and enticements of those things forbidden by God's law. The wicked attempt to lead the faithful into the ways of worldliness and apostasy. And the evil ones in this world hold the threat and reality of persecution over the righteous in an effort to persuade them to abandon their path of faithfulness to the kingdom. But in the end, all of these things will be taken away forever. The wicked themselves will be cast into the fire and there to be burned forever. They are sentenced to the indescribable torments of God's eternal wrath. This is the just judgment of Almighty God upon them for their terrible sins which they have committed. They shall be separated for eternity from the righteous and punished in hell. But the righteous, on the other hand, shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, Jesus said. These children of the kingdom are not righteous in themselves. They have not made themselves righteous by their own works. They are children of the kingdom because they are made righteous in the shed blood of the cross of Christ on the cross, on, of Christ on the cross, their savior. As that blood of Christ was shed in order to establish the kingdom of righteousness, so is the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom a righteousness which comes to them through 
the cross of Christ alone, his substitutionary work on the cross. And their, their glory awaits them then in the kingdom of the Father. In that kingdom, they shall rule with Christ forever. They shall inherit the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. And in that kingdom, they shall shine as the sun in all its glory. God preserved his cause, the cause of Christ, through the church and never allowed the wicked to overcome or prevail against them. They will see that God used all of their sufferings and trials in the world to prepare them for their final glory with him. All that happened on earth was the means under the hand of the sovereign God to realize the kingdom of heaven And all that happened to them was but the means to give them a place in that great and everlasting kingdom. But then Jesus winds up this parable with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What must he hear? He must hear the word of Christ. That is the will of God that the wicked are always near the righteous as long as the world continues. He must hear this because the way of the righteous is often hard and filled with suffering so that the righteous ponder often whether the presence of the wicked will not send down the cause of God in defeat. He must hear the voice of Christ assure him that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. In fact, he must hear the reassuring words of Christ that it is necessary according to the purpose of God that the wicked always be present. And he must hear Christ say that the righteous have the calling to maintain the antithesis, the opposition, the spiritual opposition and contrast between the weed and the tares, that we would be faithful even unto death. And there then after awaits our glory, a place in the kingdom of Christ where we shall shine forth as the sun. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful parable that you have given to us, describing what will happen between Christ's first coming and his last coming, his his second coming, and all in between, uh, with the church, the wheat growing, and coming to full ripening time for the return of Christ, but also at the same time the tares growing and ripening in evil, for their final judgment. And we know that this must be so. And so we must not look for some ability or purpose or power to pull them out, root them out of the world. For we know that you have a purpose for them as we've just considered. And so we pray that you would help us to be that watchful church, that you would help us to be, to stand fast in the truth and have the convictions of truth go down deep, deep roots into our soul so that we might bear the fruit that will bring you glory, that we might also stand fast and be those witnesses uh, before a watching world of the truth of the gospel. So help us, Lord, to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we do this all for your glory's sake. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.